0: Hello and welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, where May 2022 is Top Gun Month. That's right, the long-awaited Naval Aviation sequel is finally due out this month, and we have many activities planned around that. But first, here on episode 140, we tip the cap to a conflict that took place in the South Atlantic four decades ago this year. Never mind the announcements and listener questions, Maverick and his new cast of characters can wait. This week, it's all about the Falkland Islands Air War 40 years later. Here we go.
1: Strap in for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here's your host, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot, Vincent Aiello.
0: Well, the year 2022 marks the 40th anniversary of the Falkland Islands War, and today we want to talk about the air component of it, and here to help us do that is retired Royal Navy Commander Tim Gedge, callsign Bobsleigh. Hello, Tim. It's great to have you on the show.
2: Well, it's good to be here, and brings it back 40 years after the event.
0: Well, I bet you have not aged a day. (laughs) Okay, so as we told our listeners in advance, there are two fantastic, at least, books on the war from the Royal Air Force and Royal Navy's point of view. I'm holding them there. Of course, people can't see them, but you're familiar, Tim. One is Vulcan 607, and in fact, Martin Withers was on the show. And the other is Harrier 809. And Tim, when you go to the index, your section is about half of the page. (laughs) So we won't necessarily focus today on the factual events in order per se. This isn't a history lesson, nor will we get into the details of how or why it seemed like a good idea for an invasion and a conflict at the time. What I'd like to focus on, Tim, with your help, is simply the overall air component. Now, before we do that, we always like to get to know our guests a little better. So we'll get into the conflict itself, but could you provide us a quick background of where you're from and maybe where you went to your... Formative schooling, and then some of your military highlights. And again, we'll talk about the war itself, but maybe some of the roles that you played even after the war. And then we'll get into the meat of today's discussion.
2: Okay, that sounds good. And I was brought up in Warwickshire, in the center of England. And I started flying in a university air squadron, which was actually run by the Royal Air Force. And they actually paid you to be taught as a student, which I (laughs) thought was uh, quite miraculous at the time. I joined the Royal Navy because I loved the concept of flying from ships. That really appealed to me. And I was following an uncle who had actually uh, started naval flying in around 1920, so just over 100 years ago. In the 1960s, I qualified on the current naval all-weather fighter, the Sea Vixen, and I flew from aircraft carriers mainly in the Far East, based in Singapore. In the 70s, I transferred to the F-4 Phantom, and then was lucky enough to be selected to command the first frontline Sea Harrier Squadron. And I had handed over this squadron in early 1982, after just a couple of years in command, and just before Argentina invaded the Falkland Islands on the 2nd of April. Along the way, I had trained as a flying instructor initially, and then also as an air warfare instructor at the Royal Navy's Air Warfare School at Lossiemouth in Scotland. And this was similar in some ways to the US Navy's Top Gun School, then at Miramar. And indeed, we had exchange aircrew at Miramar when this was being set up. The late Dickie Lord was one of my instructors during training, and he came back to the Air Warfare School while I was an instructor there in the late 1960s. In 1982, I was recalled to active flying when the Falklands conflict kicked off to form a new squadron, number 809, and after three weeks of working it up, we embarked in a merchant ship, the Atlantic Conveyor, which had been rapidly converted into a carrier of aircraft. We transited down south and transferred four sea harriers to each of Hermes and Atomus Invincible And I flew mainly from Invincible during the conflict itself, and later that year embarked 809 Squadron again in a new carrier, Illustrious, that was stationed off the Falklands until the runway at Stanley was rebuilt using American AM2 matting in order to operate the F-4 Phantom, which would then provide air defense of the islands. Now, following active flying, I spent some years in London and then later in Washington, D.C., where I was closely involved with developing the specifications for the aircraft to replace the sea area. And this aircraft became the F-35B, hmm. embarked in our two Royal Navy new aircraft carriers, the Queen Elizabeth Klaus. All good things come to an end. <laughs> and after... 33 years in the Royal Navy, I founded the Boat Building Academy in Lyme Regis in the west of England to teach men and women looking for a new way of life, how to build boats. Now, it's a charity, and we've trained over the last 25 years well over 500 boat builders on a 10-month course, and this has included quite a number of aircrew, both ex-military and from the airlines. And I'm quite proud of what our graduates have themselves achieved when they leave the course.
0: I would say so. Wow, Tim, that is a lot of really interesting information. And I've jotted down a couple notes because I want to come back to a couple of things. Now, first, as this episode airs in May, we are all waving our banners and flags here in the States, at least, about this Top Gun Maverick movie that's coming out 30, what is it, 36 years later, the sequel, but also two years after COVID has postponed it. So this is ostensibly Top Gun month, but we have to acknowledge the 40th anniversary, I believe, of this conflict, although we're only doing it from the British side. I did not have enough time to find someone to talk about the other side. So I appreciate you mentioning the folks at Top Gun there. And then secondly, we get a lot of questions from young people, and maybe you've had some in your boat building world, who hope to join military aviation And sometimes they ask me, Tim, hey, what do you think I should go do, the Air Force or the Navy? And I always think it's just an incredulous question because I think, well, do you want to land on ships or do you not? Because for some people it's in their blood and it sounds like it was for you. And other people don't want anything to do with it because it seems a little too frightening. So I always ask them to look inside themselves when they ask me that question.
2: It's a very good question, and I do remember going back when I'd started flying, and I was flying the De Havilland Chipmunk at the time, and I said to um, one of my father's uh, company pilots, I said, what did he think about my idea of joining the Royal Navy? He had been in the fleet air arm of the Royal Navy in the 1950s when there was a very high accident rate, in fact, mm. which that uh, went on for a few years. But He said, the question you need to ask yourself is, to what extent do you have absolute confidence in your own ability to control something? He said, if you can answer it's absolute, then the Royal Navy is fine. But if not, don't even think about it.
0: (laughs) Very good. Let me ask you another question before we get back to the war here. Did you have a chance to do both the... Short takeoff, vertical landing, I guess we would call them now, Stovall. Maybe it was v-stall in the past. But also the regular cats and traps, uh, like maybe in an F-4?
2: Yes, I did about 800-odd um, carrier landings altogether. 600 were in hooked airplanes. My goodness. That was between uh, Sea Vixens in the 60s and the F-4 in the 70s. So that was by day and by night.
0: Okay. So I'm not trying to pit you against your countrymen, but we had Paul Tremeling on the show back during UK month in February, and he had flown the Sea Harrier and also came to the States and flew the Super Hornet. And so when I asked him what he thought was either the hardest or the easiest in order, and, and you can help me with, here, with this, however you like a hardest or easiest, he surprised me with his answer. He didn't put night carrier landings, like in an F-4 in your case, very high, where I thought that was about the most terrifying thing I've ever done, but I've not done Stovall. So how would you rate your landing experiences on a ship, Tim?
2: Age 22 in uh, (laughs) the Sea Vixen on a dark night in the South China Sea, non-diversion flying that was a challenge, but we didn't know any better. It was what you did, and you were 22 and prepared for anything. When we got the F-4 Phantom, the British carrier, we only had one carrier that could take the uh, Phantom, and that was our Royal. And it was a little too small, and the Phantom was landing a little too fast for that. The limitations were quite significant in terms of deck movement and so on. Along comes the Sea Harrier, and really that was a piece of cake compared with the other airplanes, because you could stop and you could <laughs> land in your own time. And if the ship yeah. was moving, you could wait for the ship to stop moving. And that is the colossal advantage of a vertical landing airplane. It's that ability to stop and then land, as opposed to landing and then stopping.
0: Very good. Okay, well, that. thank you. And again, I'm not trying to say Paul is wrong or crazy, but that seems more in line with what I was thinking prior to our discussion. I just wanted to ask someone, who, and you have quite the experience. Now, when you said if the ship is moving, what you mean, of course, is up and down in the waves, usually it is moving forward through the sea to get a little bit of wind over the deck.
2: Yes. I mean, it needs to move forward. Really, the deck pitches the limitation. Yes. And it's quite significant, I think, in sort of big carrier terms. Plus or minus a uh, degree and a half or degree and three quarter, you're thinking about stopping flying. We were operating in plus or minus five degrees of pitch Oof. in the South Atlantic during the Falklands conflict. And there is no other airplane that could have remotely, no other combat airplane, fighter combat airplane, that could have remotely uh, even thought about doing that.
0: Okay. Let's get back to the Falkland Islands. Now, before we start at the beginning, how many missions did you end up flying?
2: 32 combat missions, yeah.
0: 32. Okay. Which you said yesterday when we had a warm-up discussion wasn't the most, but certainly that's still quite a bit because you had taken the conveyor down and then uh, converted over, like you said, moved over to the other, both carriers in your case. So, Tim, I know you're not necessarily a historian or were you the air marshal or whatever you might call it at the time, but could you give us a overview of the British air state, if you will, prior to April 2nd, 1982? Were you flush with money in aircraft and flying, or were you retracting as a service? How would you say the overall state for, and again, if you can just answer for the Navy, that's fine, or if you know for the Air Force as well, but I want to just paint a picture prior to the invasion.
2: Well, I think we were in a pretty pilot state in the Royal Navy because we were cutting back on the uh, carriers, and indeed the carriers were going to be sold. Invincible was to go to Australia, and I had an Australian exchange pilot in my squadron who was then destined to go back with the ship. Going back a few years earlier, the Royal Air Force had undertaken to provide air defence of naval ships anywhere in the world from land-based aircraft, and this had been accepted by the government despite furious protestations from the Royal Navy. When this was put to the test in 1982, it, of course, didn't work. The nearest airfield was over 4,000 nautical miles away, (sighs) and the only tactical aircraft available to the fleet were the 28 Sea Harriers and no spare pilots. We had just about 28 pilots. And tragically, there was no airborne early warning available to the fleet This was not a good situation, not a good position for the Royal Navy to be in.
0: I understand. Now, as far as the war itself, we're going to call it a war. I should probably do some research. Somebody says, it's no, it wasn't technically a war. It was a conflict. But we're going to call it a war. The war itself had sea, air, and land elements to the fighting. I'm not sure if there was any subsurface. I didn't read about that. But how significant to the overall outcome of the conflict was the air war? Tim, and I have to think it was fairly significant.
2: Well, I think it was hugely significant. It would be totally wrong for me to give the impression that it was the sea harrier that won the war, because you don't win a war until you've got a man with a gun on the objective. So it comes down to land troops. But in many ways, the conflict was a very traditional war, insofar as troops were transported and supplied by ships. That's a very traditional role for the Royal Navy. Sure. The occasional land based C 130 Hercules did drop some very small amounts of uh, high value stores, but doing that at a range of over 4,000 nautical miles meant that they had to be particularly high value, and that included the odd person who was dropped by parachute into the sea and then picked up. There was little other land based air support. And all the 1,500 or so air sorties that were flown by Sea Harrier aircraft to Harriers, that was really it in air defense terms. And without that air defense by the Sea Harrier, it's probable that we would have lost the conflict. Because without airborne early warning, it would have left the ships extremely vulnerable. And without putting too fine a point on it, in my view, the Argentines really blew the whole thing. They should have done better. They had huge numbers of airplanes. They were operating in their own terms and they could take off when the weather was fine and they knew the weather precisely what it was going to be over the Falkland Islands. And we were just totally reactive. We were not taking the war to the mainland. That was a political decision. Really and truly, we were very, very fortunate. We had trained exhaustively and we had Trained during the two years that I'd had my squadron, we'd fought in practice air combat, that airplane, against pretty well every aircraft in the Western world. Actually, funnily enough, with the exception of the Mirage and the uh, Mirage III and the Mirage V, which, of course, the, the Argentines had. But we'd done a lot of this practice uh, air combat against aircraft on instrumented ranges, uh, some in the United States and some in the Mediterranean. We'd fought against Skyhawk aircraft and so on. We weren't doing anything that was very different to what we had trained for. Now, that was extremely important. We knew what our little aeroplane, the Sea Harrier, could do. (laughs) Importantly, we knew what it could not do. And a lot of us had got experience of more complicated, capable aircraft like the Phantom, for instance. So we knew what the um, Argentine aircraft ought to be capable of. The really good thing from our point of view was when they actually didn't seem to be doing what we expected of them.
0: So, Tim, you mentioned something about the lack of airborne early warning, and I have a list of listener questions from our Patreon supporters. One of the perks at the higher tiers is they get to ask questions during interviews, and I usually save them for the end, but this one from Desert Fox is applicable to what you said. He said, how well did the radar picket ships do in providing a level of early warning given the lack of airborne early warning? So, I know we did lose, obviously, some ships. It was a bit of a fist fight, but... How well did they do in general?
2: The picket ships did a fantastic job, but we all knew the limitations of a ship's radar, Hmm. and it can't see over the horizon. You know, that's a a fact. A super-8 on DARD attacking at very, very low level, if it's picked up at horizon range by a picket ship, it's not giving very long for anybody to react, and you absolutely do need airborne early warning if you're going to be able to uh, combat that. To put it in practical terms, if a picket ship picks up a super-étendant when it pulls up before uh, firing its um, Exocet, it's really going to have to rely only on its own ship defense systems. It can't call in anybody else to uh, protect itself. And that's a huge limitation.
0: How did the Royal Navy and Air Force divide air war duties in the Falkland Islands War?
2: It's... uh, Really, the ability of the Royal Air Force to play a a part in the the actual combat was really extremely limited. We initially sent 20 Sea Harriers in the two carriers, and then I took eight down in the ship Atlantic Conveyor, which was a container ship, which was converted Mm -hmm. at short notice into uh, being a carrier of aircraft. So we loaded eight Sea Harriers into that, and we took six. Royal Air Force Harrier GR3s, which when we set off, they were going down as attrition replacements because we thought that we were going to lose uh, a large number of Harriers and we needed something. Any Harrier was better than nothing, as it were. (laughs) In the event, when we got down there, it made an awful lot of sense to everybody for the Royal Air Force Harriers to be used in their proper role of attack and air support. That's indeed what they did. And they flew 126 missions uh, or 126 sorties in attack and forward air control type missions. To put it in context, the Sea Harriers flew over Mm 1,500 in the sort of air defense role, of which a number were attack missions as well. So on a sort of combat sense the division between the Royal Air Force and the Royal Navy was very limited in terms of the GR3s. Now, what the RAF tried to do was to support the fleet with very long-range Nimrod missions in the intelligence gathering and surveillance role, which was, I have to say, pretty limited and actually provided very little in terms of the picture to the command of what was happening. They were doing missions which... To be quite honest, they hadn't trained, therefore that was always a a problem in wartime. And the use of the Vulcan, that was an extremely cleverly uh, put together mission to take 21 bombs for over 4,000 miles from Ascension. It involves up to 18 tankers, and Martin Withers, uh, who you've interviewed, is a very interesting uh, mission that was. Yes. But I have very particular views of my own on that because it totally uh, interrupted what I was trying to do and it forced <laughs> me to take my squadron down to Ascension seven days before we needed to go there when the Atlantic conveyor arrived. We uh, flew down to Ascension, a nine-hour flight or a six-hour and a, and a three-and-a-half-hour flight using um, Victor tankers. The reason we had to go early nobody would tell me at the time, was because the Victor tankers were all preparing for these long-range Black Buck missions. In the event, they got one bomb out of all those they took south on the uh, shoulder of the runway, and the runway was in use the entire time by the Argentines throughout the war. So it was a sort of morale booster, perhaps, but it really did absolutely (laughs) nothing else. And it hugely got in the way of what was going on at Ascension. And I don't decry the cleverness of the mission, but I think it was a mistake to run it in the first place.
0: And again, Roland White's excellent book, Vulcan 607, chronicles everything about preparing for the mission and executing and all the tanker if you will, consolidation plans they had to do to get these bombers all the way down there. And I was really surprised. I thought it was a one time deal, but it, apparently they took the lessons learned and did it multiple times again. So hopefully the subsequent runs were a little better. But yes, the first one, I think it was the very first bomb, right, that landed on the runway and then the rest kind of landed on the infield. Yeah. Tim, getting back to the Air Force and the Navy, though, wasn't there, according to the Harrier 809 book, wasn't there some Air Force pilots that actually came over and augmented the Royal Navy? I mean, that had to be a little bit like a fish out of water.
2: Yes. And that was one of the reasons I needed more time to work the squadron up. I had a very singular remit from the Admiral in charge of Naval aviation at the time. (laughs) He personally rang me up and very kindly asked me whether I would like to go back to Yeovilton and form a squadron I didn't know whether to uh, salute down the telephone or or <laughs> what. But in the event, anyway, I said, when would you like me to be there, sir? And he said, well, this was about five o'clock on a Monday afternoon. He said, I'd like you to report to me at 0800 in the morning, <laughs> and I will tell you what you're to do. So uh, this I duly did. And the remit was a singular remit. He told me to... Go to the airfield at Yeovilton, which he was the other side of the main road at Yeovilton, his headquarters. He said, Go to the airfield, find yourself an office, find some aeroplanes, find some pilots, and form a squadron and be ready to go to war in three weeks. (laughs) Now, that was a pretty, pretty interesting verbal remit. So off I went and I selected the best office I could find which happened to be where the uh, Sea Harriers had been, and set about finding aircraft and finding pilots. Now, one of the problems we had, we had a very limited number of pilots altogether in the fleet air arm. Basically, we could not even muster one pilot per aeroplane. That was the uh, sum total of it. At least those were Royal Navy pilots. So we relied to a great extent on several Royal Air Force pilots doing a conversion to the Sea Harrier and augmenting the Royal Navy numbers. In the event, I could find eight war-capable Sea Harriers to go south in that three weeks. But in the event, I could only muster six pilots, the United States Marine Corps pilot was uh, not allowed to go and fight a war for the Brits, and neither was the Australian exchange pilot. So they were two of them kicking their heels, wishing (laughs) something different. So I was two pilots short. The Admiral called me over and said, you know, what were we going to do about it? My answer to him was that uh, I needed two current Royal Air Force GR3 pilots because I reckon I could convert them to the Sea Harrier in that couple of weeks or so we had, they really needed to be single-seat, radar-equipped aeroplane experience before they'd done their uh, Harrier conversion. And that meant that they had to have flown the Lightning, because that was the only single-seat fighter, radar-equipped aeroplane that existed. And there were two guys who, actually, they were at Force Airfield in Germany, I heard the story later on that their boss uh, picked them up in the bar on a Friday evening. Um, (laughs) He um, grasped them each by the shoulder and said, hey, you two, I've got good news and bad news for you. And uh, he said, one is you're going to war in a sea harrier and you're going to be flying from a ship with the Royal Navy. One of them said to me afterwards, he didn't know which was the good news or the bad news. (laughs) <laughs> uh, anyway, they arrived. Uh, that was a Friday evening, and they got themselves out of Germany and uh, to uh, Somerset in England by the Sunday morning, and I got the Melbourne that same day. So they started Sea uh, Harrier conversion in uh, double-quick time.
0: Well, and the rest, again, is very well chronicled in... Uh roland's book here in which i've got it open to the index tim and under gedge comma lieutenant commander tim so uh, you were a lieutenant commander at the time there are so many entries construction of flight deck on canberra obtains sidewinder missiles clashes with doae scientists um, proves the sea harrier's superiority to the f-16 not allowed to take test pilot to the south Uh, witnesses Brown's narrow escape, moves to Invincible, downs enemy Puma. That one's an interesting... So anyway, I can't read all of these, but 33 missions, not counting everything you did on the Atlantic conveyor. I want to ask you about your experiences in the war, but I feel like we could easily burn an hour doing it. I suppose I should limit it to what you feel maybe, apart from forming the 809 Squadron and adapting them, to the converted container ship, which itself is a riveting part of the book, what would you feel was the, dare I say, most contributable flights you did, or the most memorable flights you did, or the most consequential? Are there one or two elements of your involvement in the air war you can share with us that fit one of those or more of those bills?
2: Yeah, I think the overriding feeling I came away with after it was all over was that we had trained for just that sort of war. I alluded to this earlier. In that two years, we had practice fought the Sea Harrier against this vast uh, array of different aircraft on instrumented ranges. A number of us had experience. We'd been trained as warfare instructors. That training took place based at Lossimath in the north of Scotland. The terrain over the north of Scotland and the terrain over the Falkland Islands is almost identical, very, very similar. And the air combat we did in our air warfare school in Scotland, we started the training. This is the air warfare course that people did. We started the training with one versus one, and we ended up with six versus many. Training was really geared up to the air warfare instructor being trained to lead a flight of six or eight aircraft in a combat mission. We were normally a frontline Royal Navy squadron would have one air warfare instructor in it. We ended up with about half a dozen or more air warfare instructors in the Sea Harrier Force out of that uh, 28 pilots. We were extremely fortunate in the experience that people had. We had a mix of experience from Sea Vixen and Phantom, so that was in the sort of uh, all-weather fighter side, to the buccaneer side, which, of course, was uh, low-level strike. So we had a lot of experience. We had a number of people who'd flown in the United States with the U.S. Navy. To that extent, we were extremely fortunate in the training we had done. I keep coming back to it, that we knew what our airplane could do. And we knew particularly what it could not do. That's hugely valuable. If you look at it from the other side, the Argentine Air Force and the Argentine Navy, they had capable aeroplanes. There's nothing wrong with a Skyhawk, let alone a Mirage 3 or a Mirage 5. They used the Super Retondade extremely well. They managed to get two missiles into the Atlantic conveyor and, and sink it. They got one into Sheffield and that sank. But they made huge mistakes with the use of the aeroplanes, and that comes down to a lack of training. I think they actually thought they were better than they were, but, I mean, again, that comes down to who you've practiced your combat against. Mm-hmm. It's not something I've had discussions with people in Argentina about, but had they, for instance, launched larger numbers of aeroplanes against us, that would have been a huge problem to us. As it was, they launched groups of two or four aircraft, and the Sea Harriet could deal with that. If they'd suddenly confronted us with eight or ten, that would have been a much
0: bigger problem.
2: we had the advantage of having some warning of when they were coming. And these came in the main from submarines that were sitting off the, um, the Argentine coast. So the submarines that we had, they played a very important part in the conflict. Of course, one of the nuclear submarines sank the Belgrano, and that must have put fear into uh, Using their aircraft carrier again, because as soon as the Belgrano sank, the aircraft carrier actually disappeared from the combat scene. The aircraft carrier had Skyhawks embarked and they could have been quite a, a nuisance to us. <laughs> so having two nuclear submarines down there, one of which sank the Belgrano, that was a pretty well a master stroke. And it would have saved the fact that the uh, aircraft carrier disappeared off the combatants, was um, saved the life of, of that ship, because she would have been sunk as well had she not disappeared.
0: All right. So when you look back at your 33 missions, is there one that stands out as the most memorable or the most consequential?
2: You mentioned the fact that I and my wingman, we attacked a helicopter at one point. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult to see it. I think I got some bullets into it. I think my wingman got most of them. But anyway, that was, uh, (laughs) by the way, I think the most memorable sortie I did was a night sortie when we had intelligence that told us that an Argentine-seeking helicopter was going to be flying an Exocet into Stanley, and they were going to mount this Exocet on a truck and use it to fire against ships. And we had intelligence that said that that sea king was going to land at Fort Dundas airfield on Pebble Island. And we had a time attached to that. And I went off, and it was about sort of one o'clock in the morning, with the wingman, and we um, had leapers flares and the two mm cannons on the sea harrier. And we were going to toss the leapers flares and then try and attack the helicopter, which we hoped would be on the ground. I think it was a pretty hairbread mission, to be quite honest. But I mean, had it worked, (laughs) it would have uh, saved um, some lives. Because in the event, the helicopter was not there when we uh, tossed our leaper's flares and flew around the mountain trying to see. In fact, they got the uh, Exocet into Stanley by a different method. So the intelligence was uh, wrong. It was not an easy mission to fly.
0: Interesting that sometimes the most memorable missions are not the ones full of grandeur and drama. It's the ones that are difficult to plan and don't quite work out, but still very consequential. And in this case, it frankly was uh, unfortunate because the missile still made it and was used, you said, right? Yeah. Did they ever fire it? Yes, they did. They fired
2: it against one of the ships. And fortunately, the ship was in a turn and it bounced off the flight deck. It actually killed a number of people and knocked out uh, helicopter and
0: so on oh, gosh. could have been
2: much worse.
0: Yes, certainly. I don't remember that part of the book, but I'm sure Roland uh, chronicled it. All right, Tim, let's pivot to some listener questions if we may and some of these I sent you in advance and if I surprise you with one, <laughs> then I apologize, but yep. Joe Kunzler wants to know, besides air superiority and strike interdiction, did the Harriers perform any close air support of ground troops?
2: Well, yes, the Royal Air Force Harriers, the GR3s, they did 126 combat sorties in their primary role. So they were a mixture of close air support and interdiction and so on. So yes, they carried out their primary role. The sea harriers did not do any close air support. We'd actually written the role of close air support out of what we were doing, which had gone with the phantom. And we had phantoms in doing forward air control missions, but this was no longer in the uh, book. So the missions that the Sea Harriers carried out, the attack missions, were generally pre-planned against airfield targets or pre-planned targets, or they were opportunity targets. By opportunity, meaning the helicopter that I and my wingman were found on the ground, but actually being talked onto it using close air support, no
0: okay now George Bravo says and this one's a little bit more lofty and strategic prior to or during the conflict are you aware of any discussion amongst the Admiralty or Royal Navy or the Ministry of Defense about bringing back and he, he calls them Cato bar or catapult and uh, barrier landing or, or actually not barrier but you know rest of landings those types of carriers and did the success of the Harriers cement the fact that the Royal Navy made the correct decision in going forward with Stovall carriers? So, kind of a deeper question here.
2: It's an interesting question. As far as I'm concerned, there was never any discussion about converting the Invincible class of carrier to take a gear. Invincible class had uh, a ski jump launch, and as we've seen the, the Soviets do, you can launch conventional aircraft up a ski jump. But the uh, Invincible class, I think in practical terms, it would have been impossible to put a rest gear into that uh, carrier. Mm. It was simply not big enough. And you would need an angled deck and so on. But they had straight decks. And so it would never have happened. Now, the debate about the new carriers, the Queen Elizabeth class carriers, which are significantly bigger than Invincible. I mean, in practical terms, they're almost the same length as the uh, U.S. Navy's uh, Nimitz uh, class, although they're only 65,000 tons. They are pretty well the same sort of size. The debate about whether they should have a rest gear or whether we should go for the uh, short takeoff vertical landing concept, that has um, raged over a number of years. And indeed, the Royal Navy initially decided it was going to go Stovall, then it decided it was going to fit a gear, and then they looked at the costs of that after a year or two and decided to go back to the Stovall variant. The Stovall variant of the F-35 is actually more expensive than the F-35C, and it doesn't have quite the range of the F-35C. The F-35B, the Stovall variant, has a lot of flexibility in terms of where it can land and what it can do. That debate, I don't believe it's totally closed. In fact, I think it's still alive, but at the moment the Queen Elizabeth class carriers do not have a rest of gear. There's no intention at the moment to put a rest of gear into it. In the short term, I think the Royal Navy made the correct decision to go for the stole carriers. What we don't have without a rest of gear is the capability of fielding tanker aircraft. It's interesting, the debate. I suspect that eventually we may end up with something like the Osprey, the B-22 aircraft, to provide the carrier-on-board delivery, the COD capability. Right. And at the moment, we've got airborne early warning in a helicopter, which is extremely effective, Mm -hmm. but is that in, in the long term the best way of doing it? I don't
0: know. It's an open debate. Jim Gundog says, with the loss of so many aircraft and crews between April 22nd and June 12th, 1982, due to action and accidents and the Atlantic conveyor fire and sinking, how did it affect morale at the time and training and readiness into the future? And I think this is an interesting question, Tim, because we all know the results now with the benefit of four decades looking back. But in the midst of the fight, of course, you have these setbacks with different ships being attacked and sunk. How was morale in the midst of it? And then the second part of Jim's question is, what did those lessons lead to in the future as far as applying the lessons learned? And we'll get back to that specifically, but how that affected what you took from it.
2: Well, I think the morale is hugely important, as we all know, in any conflict. And there was some trepidation with people traveling down south. We didn't know how well or how badly we were going to do. We thought we knew. As I've said before, we've done a lot of practice missions. But uh, until you actually put it to the test, you don't know for sure. Now, the first time, the first engagement that took place, the uh, Sea Harriers shot down Argentine dagger aircraft and the Argentines fired missiles at Sea Harriers. Their missiles missed, our missiles hit. So that must have been a very significant morale blow for the Argentine air force, and it was a significant morale booster for our own pilots and Really and truly everything sort of built from there on the same day of that early air-to-air engagement, twelve sea harriers attacked two airfields at Stanley and at Green and they got a number of bombs onto the airfield, and there were no losses of sea harriers. So again, that was an unknown. We hadn't done surface attacks against land-based targets in sort of living memory. The fact that it all worked and we didn't lose anybody, that was, again, a morale booster. So morale was on the way up, really, from that day one, and it got, as you might say, better and better in the event Sea Harriers shot down 23 of the Argentine aircraft, and they shot down zero Sea Harriers. That's a very significant kill ratio
0: indeed, mm-hmm. in
2: anybody's terms. Why we haven't sold tens of thousands of Sea Harriers in the years <laughs> since is, is totally beyond me, but that's another question. Indeed. So I think from a morale point of view, We were on the up, really, from that day one, which was very important. Let's not say it was going to be easy, but things were working. We weren't making too many mistakes. Now, in terms of what that led on to afterwards, I think the biggest single result that came out of the Falklands War is the fact that we now have two large aircraft carriers and capable aircraft on board them. It's taken an awfully long time to get there, and they've only come in in the last year or two. We're extremely grateful to the United States Navy for all the training and facilities and exchange capabilities that we've had. But without that, it would have been extremely difficult to make everything work. But Everything, in a way, has kind of led towards that. It didn't happen straight away, but in training terms, that's what the Royal Navy has been leading up to. And indeed, one of the big changes is really the fact that the Royal Air Force are leading on the whole of the F-35 program at the moment. Indeed, the Dambuster Squadron 617 that embarked in Queen Elizabeth out to the Far East last year, that's a Royal Air Force squadron. Mm. It happened to be commanded by a Royal Navy commander who had flown with the US Navy, but it kind of comes together. The fact is that the Royal Navy and the Royal Air Force seem to be walking hand-in-hand into this new era of aviation.
0: Now, Tim, you said earlier that the ships were pitching up and down, uh, you said about a five-degree, if I understood you correctly, shift. And, of course, Roland's books talk much about the weather and the sea condition being a significant factor in combat down there. So Scott Morris's question is, how challenging were takeoff and landings on a relatively small deck in rough seas? And I guess that could happen anywhere, But in this case, maybe after a long mission, some of these were several hours, or maybe after sitting on alert for an hour or two, and then finally going flying and then coming back, were they difficult? And did fatigue have anything to do with it? I think
2: (laughs) the Sea Harrier is the only only fighter Mm -hmm. aircraft that could have operated in those sort of conditions. There were two things, really, that were happening. One is that the weather was changing very rapidly. There's an expression that if you don't like the weather forecast down there, you wait 20 minutes. (laughs) There's an element of uh, truth in that. The ability of the sea harrier to stop over a deck that's moving and then for the pilot to land in his own time when the ship's in a quiescent period, that's absolutely essential. Had we not had that capability, if you had had to come back to the ship Thinking back to sort of the Sea and Phantom days, you carry a huge amount of fuel around in the airplane just to, uh, in case you miss it first time.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, Tomcat or something carries around nearly two tons of fuel in order to have a second go, or a third go, or a fourth go, right. or even an eleventh go. As I watched uh, somebody on the USS Enterprise uh, doing, oh. so that capability of the Sea Harry was, uh, as I've said. Absolutely essential. Now, we were flying generally about an hour and 10 minutes sortie length. Generally speaking, we were flying 20, 25 minutes from the carrier out to the amphibious operations area, and then you had about 20 minutes on task and you had 20 minutes or so to come back. That was the sort of typical sortie length. We would generally launch from an alert 5 situation And you'd held alert five, maybe for an hour, perhaps for for two hours. You'd been in a cockpit for a while, but it wasn't a hugely long time. I think fatigue didn't come into it. Okay, Fatigue probably came into the equation because we were flying, I think the most I have ever flew was four times in a day, but generally it was two or three times a day. (sighs) Wow. And I have flown to see Harrier five times in a day, but... Generally, fatigue came from the fact that you were you know, doing a significant amount of missions in a day, yeah. rather than actually the time in, in the cockpit. I think, does that answer the question?
0: Yes, it does. Because the ship, even though it may be heaving in rough seas, every so often it will settle out and you have a little bit of a, availability in the carrier to kind of wait it out a little bit. Fuel permitting, of course. And then fatigue, you said, was more a factor of, like you said earlier, your mission to um, try to take out that Sea King with the Exocet was in the middle of the night. So you probably were not only flying several missions, but maybe through the night or in early hours. So you probably your rest was in fits and starts.
2: I think it's worth making the point the Argentines were attacking in their own time, Mm. um, in their own weather. They could pick the weather when they knew they were going to be able to take off and come back. They knew the weather over the Falkland Islands when they took off. We were totally reactive. So if it was a Force 8 gale and huge seas and they were attacking, we still launched (laughs) and were able (laughs) to recover. So we were reacting to what they were doing. So it was unlike sort of normal peacetime carrier operations where you, if the weather's bad, you don't fly.
0: (laughs) Well, sometimes. (laughs) Sometimes it seems like you do purposely fly. At least that's the decisions were made on some of my deployments. But at any rate, let's move on. Jevin says, it's been said that prior to the Falklands, there were a lot of unknowns about the Sea Harrier because it had never been tested in combat. What were some of those fears or expectations the pilots had going into the conflict that were disproven by it? And I think we've actually talked about this, Tim, because you said you had done the instrumented ranges training against many different aircraft, and that it was just the kind of training you had done in Scotland and everywhere else. So is there any more to that answer, do you think?
2: Well, I think when we started with the Sea Harrier, there was a sort of misconception that the Harrier could take a very small bomb up to sort of 25 or maybe even 50 miles and then come back short of fuel and land. So it was deemed to be a sort of very short duration aeroplane with little capability. We actually knew better than that, but a lot of our, as you might say, detractors and the general public, I think, didn't really appreciate the huge capability that the Sea Harrier had. Everybody operating it, all the pilots, certainly knew what we could do. If there were any doubters, it was those who weren't flying the aeroplane or well-versed in Mm -hmm. what it was doing. I think we've covered probably the other parts of it. All
0: right, let's move on then to Neil Phillips, who says, how much difference was there in tactics between the 800 and 801 squadrons? I have heard it said that differences here reduced the effectiveness of the Sea Harrier on some occasions. Now, I don't necessarily remember that in the Harrier 809 book, but maybe I have forgotten.
2: There was a different, and I saw this very much firsthand, there was a Different leadership. I mean, I had had command of the first Sea Harrier squadron, and the, the second squadron came along a year later. I am the CEO of the second squadron. We didn't always see eye to eye on a number of things. Now, putting that into terms of the actual uh, conflict, the Invincible squadron they flew around six hundred sorties, and their average was eight aircraft. They started with eight. I put an extra four into, made it 12, and they actually lost four aircraft. Mm. So their average was eight aircraft. In terms of numbers of aircraft that they shot down, they shot down one enemy aircraft per aircraft held. So they shot down eight aircraft. Actually, it might have been nine. That was the Invincible Squadron. The Hermes Squadron, they flew... Not quite double the number of sorties, but they flew well over 1,100. And they had an average of 14 aircraft. They started with 12, and I added four, so that made 16, and they lost just two aircraft. So they averaged 14, and again, their kill rate was one per aircraft. The statistics really don't show any difference between the two carriers or the two main squadrons that were there. There are a number of other statistics you could draw out of that. The Hermes squadrons, they flew in terms of the average length of a mission was just slightly less than the invincible ones. That's probably a factor of the larger number of aircraft that Hermes had. So they were coming back with slightly more fuel to account for that in case of delays. And also they were carrying out a number of attack missions airfield attack, which of course were shorter ones anyway, and using generally more fuel. So I don't think there are any conclusions you could actually uh, really draw from uh, statistics between the two ships between the squadrons.
0: Okay, Tim. I have two more questions. I'll answer the first one. It's from Michael, who says, how was it arranged for the Vulcan missions for the mid-air refueling? And Michael, I'm going to encourage you to read Roland White's Vulcan 607 that goes into excruciating detail on at least the Black Buck missions. But also there are, I think somewhere there's a YouTube video that has the little characters moving around that shows how they, uh, at least for that mission, did the refueling chain from the Ascension Island all the way down to the Falkland Islands. And then the last question, Tim, for you is from Sven Weber, who says the Royal Navy Falkland's task force was far from home and had a very long supply chain. And you already talked about the fact that it was thousands of miles away. How long, now this is speculation on your part, how long could the force have kept up the pressure against Argentina?
2: (laughs) I chuckled because uh, I've had a number of conversations with, people, I was down in the islands about three years ago, an army-led study, and I was bumping around the islands in a Land Rover, going from place to place, and having just this sort of discussion. And the answer to that varied from about 24 hours to some weeks. Now, the 24 hours came in because of the ammunition supplies to the troops on the ground. So I keep coming back to the fact in my own mind that, of course, in any war, there's no one single element of your armed forces that wins a war. It's a combination of support and supply chain and everything else that goes with it. The supply of ammunition, let alone food, to the troops that were on the high mountains and extremely bad weather in the islands on the last day was critical. Had they not been resupplied, then that would have been a huge problem. What the result would have been, I'm not quite sure. But the fact is that we were very, very short of helicopters. A lot of the helicopters had gone down with the Atlantic conveyor and the heavy lift, the Chinook helicopters, we'd lost four or five of them. And there was one only that was being flown with the maintenance and everything being done on the back of a fag packet. So we were very short of the heavy lift. In terms of supply chain for the ships, that could have gone on for quite a long time, Mm -hmm. but it's the troops ashore that that would have driven
0: it. Sure. Well, this has been fascinating so far, Tim. So I just have a couple questions to wrap up. Again, we're focusing on the air war, but what do you think were the most significant lessons learned from the Falkland Islands? And you've already talked a little bit about the carrier piece with one of the listener questions, but as you look back to the air war over the Falklands, what do you think is the most significant lessons learned?
2: I think the political lesson was probably the single most important lesson, because the fact that the United Kingdom actually went to war 8,500 miles away to retake some islands that nobody had ever heard of, (laughs) where there were a total of, uh, I think, 1,600 people only, that kind of got people's attention and showed that there was some resolve left in the British sort of way of going about things. And it almost certainly resulted in the Prime Minister at the time, Margaret Thatcher, being re-elected. She was not particularly popular at that time when the invasion took place. The fact that she had the intention and resolution to actually send the troops to war and to regain the islands, that did result in her re-election almost certainly. Hmm. As you've said, I think the fact is that it really did change the whole way of thinking of what a naval force is there for. And if you're going to have them, what are they going to do? And how do you configure them and everything else? And at the end of the day, we have two large aircraft carriers now, which uh, if we had not won the Falklands War, we would not have those carriers, I'm quite certain.
0: Interesting. I think, Tim, if I may add, not only did it demonstrate resolve of the British people and government, I think it really demonstrated the ability to improvise and to figure out how to quickly do something, whether it was the Black Buck or the Atlantic conveyor or standing up a squadron, in your case, (laughs) with overwhelming obstacles. And the fact that all these things were done with some degree of ingenuity, I think also speaks to uh, something to take away with some degree of pride, if I may.
2: It's a good point. And one of the more difficult things I found, having been given that very simple remit of former squadron in three weeks and ready to go to war, I found the most difficult thing was standing back from what was going on and thinking what it was we wanted. Everybody around me was clamoring to give me whatever I asked for. The whole nation, in fact, The bureaucratic elements of that were thrown out of the window. People were providing anything you asked for just on a uh, verbal request, as it were. Um, The most difficult thing was actually thinking what it was you wanted.
0: Especially when you have so many options. And so, yes, barriers were removed for you. It's such a great part of the story. And again, I know I've said it several times. I just can't recommend enough these books by Roland White, who did such a superb job well, gosh, I'm sure we could go on, Tim, but I'll just leave it at that. What does the future hold for you? Are you still building boats?
2: Yes, uh, 25 years. I <laughs> all right. started this uh, school of boat building. We've uh, helped a lot of people. We've developed the boat building school into uh, added on furniture making. Huh. In the early years, we had a number of people from North America, in fact, from all around the world on courses, and we're... The visa requirements have changed, but we're hoping to get that back to what it was. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping to recruit more people from North America in particular. So that's occupied my time. I turned it into a charity. I brought in a number of other directors and trustees. And in fact, I've got an honorary position now. The weight is kind of off my shoulders, but I'm still personally involved in it.
0: Is there a website that listeners maybe can go visit in case they want to maybe contribute somehow?
2: Boatbuildingacademy.com. Okay. All one word.
0: All right, Tim. Well, you said 33 years of service earlier. That's amazing. So thank you on behalf of your countrymen and freedom loving people around the world. And how many flight hours did you end up with?
2: It's getting on for 4,000.
0: Wow. And the good news is that the 809 Squadron continues to live today. Yes?
2: Yes. It's supposed to be uh, forming up at Royal Air Force Maram. As a naval squadron, was going to happen next year? I think it's been delayed a bit now, but uh, that's almost inevitable. It will happen.
0: All right. Well, Tim, I can't let you go without our final traditional question here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, and that is, how did someone come up with bobsleigh for Tim Gidge?
2: <laughs> that came from the time when we got the F-4 Phantom into the Royal Navy, We had a number of people who had been on exchange with the U.S. Navy. We had a number of U.S. naval exchange crews in the squadron. And the idea of using a call sign was something that we'd always deemed it an Americanism that we didn't kind of subscribe to naturally. But anyway, we adopted the idea of call signs. And mine was bobsleigh for no better reason. The sport, which I was pretty keen on doing at the time, was riding the Cresta Run in St. Moritz. That's skeleton toboggan racing.
0: (laughs) Okay. Have you given that up or do you still do that?
2: (laughs) I'd love to be doing it, but no, that's that's something you do when you're young and foolish.
0: Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, especially the foolish part, I guess. Uh, Anyway, well, Tim, this has been hugely enlightening. I've always known just a little bit about the war and Obviously, Roland's helped with his books, but you've really added a dimension to the Falkland Island air war here 40 years later. So thank you so much for what you did then and taking the time now.
2: A great pleasure. Thank you.
0: Before you go, I want to tell all you DCS players out there that our sibling podcast, Air Combat Sim, recently released an episode with the folks at Razbam, who are developing a Falkland Islands map, which will be released soon. I also want to thank our newest Patreon supporter at the Air Boss tier. That's the highest possible level. I won't mention his name, but he is a Qatari F-15 QA Wizzo. Thanks very much. Otherwise, that will do it for this week. We'll see you all back here in 10 days for the proper kickoff of Top Gun Month with a discussion on the legacy of the actual Navy Fighter Weapons School the films are loosely based on. Until then, you take care, and we'll see ya.
1: You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BBR Productions. Got a question for the show? Email us at questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to follow us on your favorite social media platform and check out our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com. For exclusive content and to help support the show, check out our Patreon page. Thanks for listening.